0: Several themes from the Gospel of Matthew seem to converge in this one very well-placed narrative this morning. We saw at the beginning of this chapter that the Jewish leaders have largely rejected Jesus, and even his own disciples seem to be missing the point of his ministry. And so the question remains, who is going to respond? Who is going to get it, for lack of a better word? And it turns out Great faith is often found in unexpected places, as our narrative picks back up in verse 21, where it said, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And so, It seems as though Jesus was seeking a break from the intensity of the ministry that was taking place in the region of Galilee and Gennesaret that we've been following up on the last couple of weeks. And who do they find in this Gentile region they have now gone to minister in but a Canaanite woman? Now, that's a very important word to understand this morning's text and all of the other things that unfolded, because this is the only time you find that word Canaanite in the New Testament. It's mentioned plenty of times in the Old, first time and only time in the New. Why is that? And keep in mind, this is only written in the book of Matthew, which was written primarily to the Jews. Because the Jews who were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures would have immediately recognized what a Canaanite is and instantly know and understand the scandalous nature of what's unfolding in this passage. Because they would have remembered immediately the Canaanites as the original occupiers of Israel, whom were so wicked and had such despicable practices that God basically had them wiped out from that region, despite having given them 400 years to repent of their sins and change from their ways. So the last thing that the disciples would have expected from someone with a heritage of idolatry and despicable practices was great faith. Nothing about this passage would have made sense to an Israelite reading this passage. But yet, I'm reminded of a quote that says that every saint has a past and every sinner can have a future. And that's really what we see in this passage. But why is this woman coming to Jesus in the first place? I mean, there's a temple to the pagan god of healing just three miles north of Sidon. Why didn't she go there? Well, maybe she did. We're not told. She very well could have. Maybe she did taste to see what her religion and her traditions had offered, but came up empty and realized she needed something more than what her upbringing had left her with. And look, as I'm looking around the room right now, I know that not... not all of you have always been biblical Christians or Christians at all, for that matter. I know enough of your stories to know that this very room represents a lot of different traditions and upbringings and situations. And, but you left those prior traditions for one reason or another. Maybe they let you down. Maybe they were making you promises that they couldn't deliver on. Uh, Or they weren't teaching the truth. Or worse, they weren't living by the truths they were claiming to profess. That happens a lot too, unfortunately. Or perhaps, maybe it was a whole different angle. Maybe it was that you saw the love of God in the people of God at this little church on Broadway. And God drew you to that as you saw the love of the saints here. And knew, hold on, I don't know quite what it is. But they have something I don't. Something is different there. And I can't help but to wonder if the reason why this Canaanite woman is approaching Jesus is the same reason why many of you guys are here this morning, seeking truth, seeking love and perhaps even seeking power to change your life, that what was promised to you before is just not delivering. And you're here about this guy named Jesus wondering, hey, I wonder if what people have spoken about him can be true for me too. But for this woman, perhaps she was even running away from the effects of growing up or being around this occultic pagan environment that she was in. I mean, look, physical problems can happen to anyone, but without getting too deeply into it, Demonic possession does not appear to be something that happens randomly. Contemporary scholars have speculated that when, someone, when something like this would happen to somebody in Scripture, it's because somebody somewhere opened the door to it. Um, perhaps through these pagan occultic practices that they were practicing at the time. And, you know, that's just speculation, but it's got some explanatory power to it. I mean, that would explain, if, if correct, why first century Israel seemed to be experiencing this epidemic of demonic activity, and why we don't see it as obviously in our modern American society. Again, it's just speculation, and perhaps Satan has different plans for our nation, but that does have some explanatory Uh, power to it. It's an intriguing thought. Whatever the reason, she finds herself seeking Jesus instead of what she had always known. And she approaches him believing he is both able and willing to meet her in this situation, in this time, in her time of need. But this passage took place during a particular period of history as we dive back into our text in verse 23 where it tells us he did not answer her a word and his disciples came and begged him saying send her away for she is crying out after us and he answered I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel so many fascinating things about this exchange Jesus doesn't accept say a word to her at first. It's because he's trying to draw something out of her and indeed his disciples before the end of this exchange. Because his disciples at this point only want her sent away. Perhaps looking down on her because she's a Canaanite and a woman. In the first century for an Israelite, neither of those traits would have garnered a second look from a Jewish man they still obviously had a lot they needed to learn from jesus but what jesus said here is true they were focused on ministering to the nation of israel specifically at this time when jesus sent out the disciples on their short-term mission trip back in matthew chapter 10 they were given the same directive stay in israel while proclaiming this gospel and we got to ask why why is so individually focused at this period of history? Well, simply because God's plan was never to save only Israel, but His plan was always to save everyone through Israel. There's a very big difference there. But this was always the plan. God told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him. Because that through him would come the Messiah who would save the whole world. And you guys all heard uh, our first reading from Isaiah 56 that God's house would be a house of prayer for all peoples. And that was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And there's countless other passages I wish I had time to unpack all throughout the Old Testament talking about how God's plan was to save all the Gentiles and that all men would be saved. That was always God's heart. So we got to get the picture there. God's plan was to save the world through Israel. And if that's the point, it's very important that Israel gets the message. If Israel doesn't have the message, how's it going to spread out? That was the 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 purpose for the mission, for the intentionality that God had set up. Because I mean, I mean, just just look at. All you have to do is look at where Israel exists on a map, and you can see why this is. Because God put his chosen people right at the crossroads of Africa, Asia, and Europe. That if, during that ancient time, if you were going to cross continents, you had to pass right through or right next to Israel. They were at the crossroads of civilization at that time. And so when the timing was right, the gospel spread everywhere. Because people were coming through and by Israel, hearing about Jesus and taking the gospel to all the nations. (laughs) Funny, it's as if God had a plan and a purpose for it the whole time. God didn't just give them a random piece of land. Turns out there was a purpose all along. Okay, now you might say, okay, that makes sense, pastor, but how in the world are you going to explain what Jesus said in verse 26, and indeed verse 25, where it says that when she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ooh, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? Let's be honest. What do you guys think about that? Well, if your guess is, John, I I must be missing something. There's got to be something lost in translation here. You'd be right. Because, look, I, I love our English Bibles, especially the one that we have here. It really faithfully renders the Greek and the Hebrew into our modern language. But it's really hard to pick up on idioms that existed at the time because he's not using the word here for wild dogs and scavengers and things you're kicking out of your property. He's talking about a domesticated house pet. You could almost say the puppy. And look, I know many of you guys, just looking around the room, some of you guys are animal lovers. And you guys consider your pets as part of the family. I don't personally get it, but I know that's you guys. <laughs> I get it. My wife's that way. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but even you guys, even those of you who love your animals and take care of them and consider them family, you wouldn't put them on the same level as a child in your family. There's a difference there. And look, at the end of the day, the main thing Jesus is doing here is trying to get this woman to think. It's very similar to what happened when the rich young ruler approached Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus answered in return, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, did Jesus ask the the young man that because he didn't understand his question? No, not at all. He's, He's trying to make sure the young man understands his own question and the implications of it hey, you're calling me good. Only God is good. What are you saying about who I am? Do you understand the implications of your question? And Jesus is doing a similar thing here to to kind of flesh it out and put it in our own vernacular. Jesus is basically saying, why are you here? You're not an Israelite. In fact, you've been playing around with some pretty dangerous stuff in your culture. You've been associating with dangerous things, and yet you're here. Why have you come to me? What do you believe about me that would bring you here, defying everything that else in your culture to come to the Jewish Messiah? What do you believe about me? Very interesting way, twist, to help us understand what's going on here. And her answer says a lot about what she believes about him and about what she can expect to receive when she replies in verse 27. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. A beautiful reply. Humble and strong. And by the way, this is the third time she calls him Lord in this passage. I'm not sure if you've noticed. Three times calling him Lord, and even once calling him the son of David. For a Canaanite, for a Gentile, she's got a pretty good understanding of who Jesus is. And furthermore, she doesn't deny that she doesn't deserve what she's asking for. She she knows that she doesn't, and yet she presses into him and asks him for it anyway, not out of merit, but out of mercy. And my friends, if the gospel isn't screaming at you from the pages at this point, I don't know what Bible you're reading. This is the whole point of the gospel, that we don't deserve God's mercy and grace. That what we deserve from God is for him to ignore us, leave us to our sin, let us face the punishment that God told us we would face back in the early chapters of Genesis when he said, if you sin, you shall surely die. But that we, and recognize that we, we don't deserve to be saved any more than this woman does. But the person who approaches God the same way she does, Those who do not demand entry into heaven, entry into God's presence, and requesting things from him based off of our own righteousness. But asking for mercy based off of Jesus' righteousness will find that mercy. And guys, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you can relate a little too well to this woman being talked about here. Maybe, maybe you're not a typical churchgoer. Maybe you've made some mistakes. Maybe you're willing to admit you've been playing for the wrong team. Living in a lifestyle you know you shouldn't be in. And if that's you, I pray that you're saying in your heart, God, I don't deserve anything from you. But And whatever I ask of you, I know that's already more than I deserve. But I hear of your power. I see the way you've touched so many lives, the way you've changed people I know. And I pray that if you are a fraction of how good people say that you are, that you would look upon me and save me also. And I can assure you, Whatever you have heard about Jesus this morning, he is even more merciful and even more powerful than you've been led to believe. Because if you approach Jesus Christ today with the same heart that this woman does, admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that you need his love and salvation and ask him to be Lord of your life and to forgive your sins, he will do it. I can assure you of that. Not because the words of that I just uttered are magical or anything like that, or there's something special about the way you word things. But that's the kind of heart that pleases God. And how do I know that he will? How do I know that he's going to forgive us? Well, I can see from how he responds to this woman in verse 28, where we wrap up today where he says, That Then Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I love that. How is that for the love, compassion, and power of our Savior? Healing her daughter from that very hour, despite never meeting her. She's not here for this exchange. She's off somewhere at home and God, Jesus heals her anyway from a distance in his power. And this compliment that Jesus gives her is breathtaking, saying, great is your faith. A compliment, by the way, only given to her and the Roman centurion we saw a few chapters ago in Matthew chapter 8, both outsiders to Israel. Neither familiar with Hebrew scripture, neither growing up in church all of their life. But he says only to these outsiders, great is your faith. You see, their faith was great not because they had more, but because it was based on so little It was shocking, it was surprising that these people who are outsiders who should know nothing about the Messiah should come in and call him Lord three times and call him, rightly so, the Son of David, the Messiah. You see, look, for for a Jew who was raised in the Holy Scriptures to acknowledge the Messiah wouldn't have been so impressive. You kind of expect that. That's what ought to have happened at least. And in fact, Peter was even told he had little faith just one chapter before. Some of you guys remember that. Because he ought to have had and displayed more faith considering what he's seen. The guy's been following Jesus for two years already. He ought to have demonstrated more faith. But yet this woman, knowing so little, having so minuscule understanding of who he was, And so few avenues, so little light in her darkness, responds so beautifully. And and this is why some of the most moving testimonies that we experience and we hear from other Christians are those who overcame so many obstacles to, to, um, to move from being so far away from God to being so close. those people that you would think would be the last person who would be saved so far from the world, out in the world, and living in such a crazy lifestyle of sins. When those people come to Christ, we are awed by their testimony, aren't we? And it's not because of the power of their sin that we are awed. But we are awed by the love, the power, and sovereignty of the God who overcame all of those obstacles to save that person bringing them saving faith despite all of those reasons. That's what you're supposed to feel when a testimony is done right. It's not about glorifying your prior sins. Some people do that. I've heard those stories. Some of you maybe have too. But when it's done right, it's a testimony to the power of God and the way he was able to sovereignly move around every reason, every reasonable excuse, every obstacle to coming to faith. And he does it anyway, out of his love and compassion for us. That's why we're so moved by those. Because, I mean, look, at the end of the day, we all have the same testimony. At the end of the day, I can boil down every testimony from every person here into this. I was a lost sinner without Christ. I heard and understood the gospel I responded in faith, I repented of my sins, and now I have everlasting life. I mean, that's all of our testimony. If you are a Christian, that's your testimony. I might have abridged it slightly, but that's it. Because that's how each of us are saved. If that's not your testimony, there's a problem. (laughs) Perhaps your story is not yet complete. So look, we all have a story. What's yours? What obstacles has God moved and removed in your life as he brought you to him? You know, for some of us, you know, it was the, the tip, the prototypical testimony of, oh, oh, I was out there in the world experimenting with this, that, and the other thing, and God brought me back. For others, you know, I think it's just as amazing that God rescues you right in the pew. That God rescues you from the dead religion that proliferates so many pews these days. That can be just as powerful, and I think that's just as needed of a testimony as some of the more, for lack of a better word, extreme ones that you hear these days. Where God reveals to the person who did grow up in the church for them to realize it's not about the formalities. It's not about the traditions. It's not about the rituals. It's not about fasting because it's Lent and that's what you're supposed to do. But it's about loving Jesus with all of your heart, recognizing the grace and love that he has shown us on the cross and responding in faith for what, in what he has done for us. So as we kind of wrap it up this morning, it's a beautiful thing that we, can be, that we believe a gospel so powerful that it could even change this Canaanite woman f- so far from God into a redeemed saint just like the rest of us. And I find it fascinating that despite probably not hearing the Sermon on the Mount herself, She gives a perfect example of what Jesus taught there. She came poor in spirit, and hers was the kingdom of heaven. She came mourning over her past, and she received comfort. She displayed meekness in her request, and she inherited more than she could imagine. She kept asking until she received, seeking until she found, and knocking until the door was opened. Indeed, this this Canaanite woman, a descendant of wicked idolatry, got the message where even the religious leaders and even Jesus' own disciples were missing it at this time. They, They missed the message. The question for us this morning is, do we get the message? Thanks be to God.